0: Hi, my name is Professor Corey Olson from Washington College. I study medieval literature. I specialize in the works of Chaucer and Sir Thomas Mowry, but I have also been an avid reader of J.R.R. Tolkien since I was a kid, and the more I read and reread Tolkien's works, the more amazed I have become by his stories. When I came to Washington College, I fulfilled what is basically a lifelong dream of mine to teach a full semester course on the works of Tolkien. I realize, though, that a lot of people don't get the chance to study Tolkien in an academic setting. In academia as a whole, Tolkien in particular, and the fantasy genre in general, are so looked down upon, unfairly, that there just aren't that many Tolkien courses taught. I've begun the Tolkien Professor website in order to give more people the chance to study Tolkien's works with the kind of respect and attention that I think his works so richly deserve. I am myself convinced that Tolkien's works match up to any works of English literature of the last three centuries at least, and I'm really excited to share some of my thoughts about Tolkien's books with you. Now before I get started with the introductory lecture, let me just explain briefly how these lectures will work. I plan to do an extended series of lectures on each of Tolkien's major works. I'm going to start with The Hobbit, since it was the first one published. The Lord of the Rings, of course, was initially conceived as a sequel to The Hobbit, though it turned out to be something rather different, and rather huge, as Tolkien discovered while writing it. Beginning with The Hobbit, then, will help us to see the roots of many of the ideas that are more fully developed in The Lord of the Rings. The deep roots of both stories can be found in the Silmarillion, Tolkien's mythological account of the early ages of Middle-earth, millennia before the events of The Lord of the Rings, and I hope to come back to that after I finish The Lord of the Rings. Now I realize that most of you have probably read Tolkien's works before, though I recognize that some won't have. I encourage all of you to read the relevant portion of Tolkien's works along with me as I go through them. In my talks I'm going to be looking carefully at fairly short passages, something like one to three chapters at a time. I'm going to be doing a lot of close reading, and I'll be making many specific references to and quotations from the texts. For each lecture, I'll let you know what the relevant reading is, so that if you want to follow along more closely, you can. On my website, you'll find a little bookstore that supplies links for purchasing excellent authorized editions of Tolkien's texts. The page numbers I quote in my lectures always refer to the editions I link to on the site. I'll also sometimes refer to Tolkien's letters by number, which correspond to the numbers in the edition of Tolkien's selected letters edited by Humphrey Carpenter. This is also in my little bookstore. But enough preamble. This introductory lecture is called How to Read Tolkien and Why. In this lecture, I'll be looking at some popular critical approaches, ways of reading Tolkien, and examining them in the light of what Tolkien himself says about his books and about writing in general. My goal here is to give a good background in how Tolkien himself understood the writing and the reading of stories. In short, what did he think he was doing when he wrote The Lord of the Rings? What was at stake for him in this process? I want to build a framework, a foundation for talking about his works. In this lecture, I'll be focusing primarily on two pieces of Tolkien's writing, the foreword to the second edition of The Lord of the Rings, found at the beginning of the Fellowship, and his essay on fairy stories, which can be found in the volume titled The Monsters and the Critics. Now, it would be normal to start with a discussion of Tolkien's life, a sketch of his biography. This kind of background information is generally thought to be essential for an in-depth study of an author's work. There will be times when I'll mention facts from Tolkien's life in the course of my lectures. There are moments and ideas in Tolkien's books that are interestingly illuminated by his life, but I'm not going to start there. Tolkien believed that knowledge of an author's life is a vastly overrated way of gaining insight into his writing. He says in letter 213, for instance, I object to the contemporary trend in criticism with its excessive interest in the details of the lives of authors and artists. They only distract attention from an author's works and end, as one now often sees, in becoming the main interest. Tolkien always wanted his readers to focus on his stories, not on him. While I'm on the subject, let me explain two other approaches that Tolkien was uncomfortable with and which I would caution against. The first is doing a strictly allegorical reading of one of his stories. In the foreword to the second edition, Tolkien says of The Lord of the Rings, as for any inner meaning or message, it has in the intention of the author none. It is neither allegorical nor topical. Tolkien is responding here to widespread speculation that the book was an allegory of World War II. Remember that The Lord of the Rings was published about ten years after the end of the war. Now he goes on to explain on page Roman numeral 15, I cordially dislike allegory and have done so since I grew old and wary enough to detect its presence. By saying it has no inner meaning, no message, he's not saying that his stories are meaningless, that they're entirely unconnected with life. Instead, he's making a crucial distinction. He says, I much prefer history, true or feigned, with its varied applicability to the thought and experience of readers. I think that many confuse applicability with allegory, but one resides in the freedom of the reader and the other in the purposed domination of the author. This is a very important distinction to Tolkien. An allegory is a symbolic drama through which an author is trying to communicate a particular meaning. Characters and events in an allegory are all supposed to stand for something else. This mode was really popular in the Middle Ages, and can often be both fun and intellectually engaging for the reader. Through a carefully crafted symbolic narrative, an author is trying to steer readers to a very specific point or set of points. It is in this sense that the author of an allegory is practicing purposed domination upon the reader. Now, Tolkien recognizes that all stories contain things applicable to the thoughts and experiences of readers. There are many different things that are going to strike different readers in very different ways. This applicability to the reader is unique, and it's fundamentally outside of the control of the author. These effects may at times be manipulated by the author, but the author isn't trying to shepherd readers towards a particular interpretive goal. Now, this doesn't mean that Tolkien never tried to convey ideas. He even does use symbolism and even allegorical elements at times in his stories. But it's important to remember Tolkien's discomfort with a heavy-handed, proactive stance on the part of an author. He doesn't shove his readers towards one particular goal. He's more interested in the dynamic, even if unpredictable, ways in which a reader interacts with a story. Another approach to be wary of is the analysis of source material. Tolkien was very well read. By profession, he was a philologist. He had an amazing understanding of language and was fluent in dozens of languages. He was also a medievalist. He immersed himself in ancient and medieval literatures of various periods and countries and traditions. Tolkien's works contain many elements and ideas that are inspired or influenced by many of these works. It's really tempting, therefore, to get caught up in identifying and cataloging the source materials that underlie his ideas. A lot of people tend to want to dissect his stories, to trace his references, his allusions, the analogues to his stories, and the adaptations he's doing. Tolkien was not happy at all with people doing this kind of thing. In one of his letters, in which he's talking about the analysis of his stories by critics, he even quotes the words in which Gandalf rebukes Saruman in The Fellowship of the Ring, he that breaks a thing to find out what it is, has left the path of wisdom. Tolkien doesn't necessarily object to the analysis of his works so long as it is the work itself being analyzed. In his essay on fairy stories, he makes an interesting analogy to illustrate this. He compares the telling of a tale to the dipping of a ladle into a huge pot of stew, what he calls the cauldron of story. A story is like soup in the complex intermingling of the elements it's made of. In any story, those elements blend together into a new whole. It's more than just the sum of its individual ingredients. It's not like a salad with different things just lying there together on a plate. All of the ingredients contribute their flavors to the unique taste of the stew. Tolkien says that if we criticize soup, we must criticize it as soup, as a whole. When we taste soup, we should be focusing on its complete and unique flavor, not trying to anatomize it, concentrating on what it's made of, like some kind of snooty food critic. We shouldn't be sitting and speculating about what exactly went into the stock. When we do that, we stop really experiencing the soup itself. This doesn't mean you have to like it, but he wants readers to experience his stories on their own ground, not to dissect them, no matter what the reader's final reactions to the stories may be. We might say, wow, that's good soup. Or we might say, in the words of my four-year-old son, gross but either reaction would at least be an honest response to the stories themselves. I should pause here for a sort of corollary to this soup argument. If you've ever cooked stew, you know that it's best when it's cooked for a long time at low temperature. The longer you cook it, the more savory the stew is. Tolkien unabashedly applies the same principle to stories. He prefers old things, old words, old ideas, old themes from old stories. There isn't a whole lot that Tolkien liked about the modern world. He was not thrilled by new things. I'm a medievalist too, and I have to admit that I can totally relate to this. One of the things that Tolkien disliked most about the modern world is the rage for novelty that we tend to have, how we tend to value things just because they're new, because they're the latest thing. Tolkien sees this enjoyment of ours as a sign of the corruption of our age, actually. We'll be able to see Tolkien's respect for old things at many points in his works. Okay then, we've looked at three approaches to reading stories that Tolkien didn't like. The biographical approach, allegorical readings, and the identification of source materials. It's good to be aware of these, but what I'm really interested in is the overall pattern here. What do these approaches all have in common? What fundamentally is Tolkien objecting to? What's he really concerned about? The main thing that Tolkien had a problem with was oversimplification. Each of these approaches involves bringing in some kind of outside information that seems to provide a kind of key to the stories. They give us a sense that we understand what's really going on without actually paying attention to the story itself. It gives us a kind of shortcut. It makes reading the story with care, at least to some extent, superfluous. Let me give some examples to show what I mean. I'll start with the biographical approach. Here's a quotation from the website of the Tourist Board of the City of Birmingham in England. Tolkien himself said that there was a danger and too much interest in the life of an author, as it distracted attention from the author's work. He then went on to say that he was a hobbit in all but size, liked gardens, trees, and unmechanized farmland, smoked a pipe, and liked good plain food. Now the author of this quotation is obviously implying that Tolkien's objections to the biographical approach are some kind of smokescreen. My favorite part of the quotation is the way it ends with an exclamation point. Smoked a pipe and liked good plain food! I take their exclamation point as implying that the connection between Tolkien's life and his story is completely self-evident, and that therefore his denial of this connection is obviously absurd. Now, we must keep in mind, by the way, that the city of Birmingham's tourist board has a strong vested interest in this question. This particular theory of Tolkien's is highly inconvenient for them. Tolkien spent most of his childhood in the Birmingham area, and they're trying to get Tolkien fans to come out and see his family house and stuff. They recognize that if you actually accept Tolkien's argument about the biographical approach, you'll be a lot less inclined actually to schlep out to Birmingham. In any case, what I want you to notice is that the author of this quotation has not actually said anything at all about Tolkien's works, has made no substantive argument about the stories in general or about hobbits in particular. Yes, hobbits reflect many, though by no means all, of Tolkien's own likes and dislikes. So what? How does it help us to know this? It's an interesting, fun fact, but does it give us any real insight into the stories? Does it inform our reading of them? How? Are we to say that hobbits are Tolkien? That he's portraying himself when he describes hobbits? So what they do, he approves of, he's behind? So hobbits everywhere are speaking with Tolkien's own voice? I mean, obviously no. Oh, so shall we say that Bilbo specifically is really Tolkien? Okay, that sounds better. But is it? Again, where does it get us? Does it mean that we can apply all the things that Tolkien says to Bilbo? Does it mean that we can draw conclusions about Tolkien, about his opinions and his feelings, from how Bilbo's described? No and no. This is just oversimplification. It's reductionism. This doesn't help us understand the story, this gets in the way of understanding the story. Once we establish this biographical connection, it's hard to resist the feeling that we have some kind of special insight, that we have hobbits figured out, in some sense. The end result is that we tend to read less carefully, we tend to think less thoroughly through the story. For an example of the allegorical approach, I want to return to the idea that the War of the Rings is supposed to be World War II. Tolkien spends a fair amount of time poking holes in this idea in the foreword to the Lord of the Rings he says the real war does not resemble the legendary war in its process or its conclusion if it had inspired or directed the development of the legend then certainly the ring would have been seized and used against sauron he would not have been annihilated but enslaved and barad-dûr would not have been destroyed but occupied and he goes on to give a bunch of other examples tolkien is not just nitpicking here His point is that when you theorize an allegorical interpretation of a story, the temptation is even stronger than with a biographical approach for you to stop paying attention to the story. Usually, you end up working to fit the story into the theory. You downplay or overlook things that don't fit into your idea, things that might in fact be really important. Again, this approach is very reductionist. You are looking for the answer, the key, and by doing so, you're likely to miss the point big time. Finally, I want to consider an example of Tolkien's use of source material, specifically a connection between The Hobbit and Beowulf. Now, I love Beowulf. If you've read it, and I hope you have, and you know The Hobbit, then a moment near the end of the poem might have jumped out at you. A small thief sneaks into the lair of a fire dragon and steals a large two-handed golden cup, and the theft so enrages the dragon that it wreaks fiery destruction on the local towns. Now, what do you do when you notice this? The tendency is to say, aha, a reference to Beowulf, and to get all excited about the connection. Okay, maybe it's only English professors that get all excited about this kind of thing. But anyway, the connection is very interesting as far as it goes. The question is, how far does it go? How does it really help? How much does it really tell us about Bilbo, about Smaug, and about their story? The two moments, though similar, are certainly not the same story. I want to go back here to Tolkien's soup metaphor. Beowulf in particular, and Anglo-Saxon poetry in general, are very influential in Tolkien's thinking. I mean, we're talking about a guy who wrote poems in Anglo-Saxon for fun. We can think of the Anglo-Saxon tradition as forming a big part of the stock on which the soup of Tolkien's stories is based, but we can't let the recognition of this fact distract us from savoring Tolkien's stories as soup in its own right. So then, how should we read Tolkien's stories? In the foreword, Tolkien says that the prime motive for The Lord of the Rings was the desire of a tale-teller to try his hand at a really long story that would hold the attention of readers, amuse them, delight them, and at times maybe excite them or deeply move them. Do we buy this? He just wanted to write a really long story? (laughs) That sounds so simplistic. It still leaves us with the big question of why. Why, according to Tolkien, write stories at all? We know that he wants us to focus on experiencing the stories themselves, but what's the good of amusing, delighting, or even deeply moving readers? We need to look at how he understands the nature and purpose of storytelling. The place where Tolkien explains these things most clearly is his essay on fairy stories. In this essay, he uses an interesting metaphor to describe stories. He calls a story a leaf on the great tree of tales. There are several important things that this metaphor suggests. First, it suggests that the story is something outside the teller. It isn't merely an artificial product of the teller's mind. A story is discovered rather than invented. Second, stories discovered like this are part of some much larger organic whole. A story is only a glimpse by the teller of one part of a much larger thing that exists not only outside of the mind of the teller, but beyond the complete comprehension of any individual author. Third, this great, separate, organic whole of which any story is a part is itself a living thing, a tree. Any life or beauty in an individual tale is ultimately derived not from the teller, but from the tree of tales itself. So we might ask, what does Tolkien suggest the author's role actually is? I mean, do authors do nothing, then? Are they totally passive in this process? Well, no. Tolkien says that an author's job is to unfold the leaf. Authors don't just discover the leaves, they reveal them to the world, or at least to their audience. The art of the telling is the writer's. Their art is the means by which authors transmit their glimpses of the tree to their readers, and thus they are largely responsible for how successfully the story is received by their audience. But the author is not an inventor, not a creator. The word that Tolkien uses to describe the process of story-making is subcreation. We tend to talk about artists being creative, but humans can't actually create stuff. They can't make something out of nothing. Only God can be creative in the literal sense. By using the term sub-creation, Tolkien emphasizes that this literary creation is much lesser than God's creation and derivative of it, but he also points to the parallels between the two creative processes. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, or what Tolkien calls the primary world. A storyteller creates an imaginary world, what Tolkien calls a secondary world. This is sub-creation. A reader or listener, then, is invited by the author of a story to enter into the secondary world of that story in our own imaginations. English teachers sometimes describe this experience as willing suspension of disbelief. We know when we read a story that what we read is not actually true, but we must make the choice to go along with it nevertheless. Tolkien did not think that this was a good description of what happens in a successful story. What really happens, Tolkien says, is that the storyteller proves a successful sub-creator. He makes a secondary world which your mind can enter. Inside it, what he relates is true. It accords with the laws of that world. He adds, the moment disbelief arises, the spell is broken. The magic, or rather art, has failed. Willing suspension of disbelief, therefore, is only a substitute when the storyteller's art fails. It's the means by which we tolerate a poor performance. The successful sub-creator does not just ask that we play along. He ushers our minds into the world of his story. Tolkien calls this secondary belief. Now it's important to note that this secondary belief that Tolkien describes is not in any way dependent on whether the secondary world in question is what we would call realistic. It does not have to be real according to the laws of the primary world in order for us to invest in it. This is a really important point for Tolkien. What I've already said about sub-creation is true for all literature. Tolkien believed that fantasy literature, stories about magic and magical worlds, has an additional special function. In these stories, the separation from the real world is one of the things that draws us to invest in it. They are not about possibility, what can really happen. They're about desirability. If they awaken our desires, they succeed. Stories of this kind excite our faculties of awe and wonder. I'll come back to this point in a little while. Now, in On Fairy Stories, Tolkien takes a lot of time responding to a very natural question that arises as we're considering these things, and that is, is all of this really healthy, either for the writer or for the audience? Isn't this all just a bit escapist at best, or at worst leading to actually losing touch with reality? Well, as for the author, Tolkien insists that the desire to be the sub-creator of an imagined world is itself perfectly healthy. He bases this claim on his Christian faith and worldview. He calls the subcreative impulse not only natural, but a human right. He says we make in our measure and in our derivative mode because we are made, and not only made, but made in the image and likeness of a maker. This doesn't mean, of course, that our subcreations are themselves always wholesome. Humans are fallen and corrupted by sin, and so the literary worlds we create frequently reflect this corruption. But the desire to subcreate is part of who we are as human beings. I'd like to pause for a moment here to say a few things about Tolkien's Christianity. Tolkien was a firm believer in Christianity and a faithful member of the Catholic Church from his youth up. His writing and his thinking are based throughout on Christian premises. This might not always be obvious in his stories themselves. If we're looking for a Christian message, we won't find it very easily. When compared, for instance, with the Chronicles of Narnia by Tolkien's very good friend C.S. Lewis, the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings will seem to lack any queer Christian message. This isn't because Tolkien was a less serious Christian than C.S. Lewis, or less willing to express his beliefs. It mainly reflects a difference in literary taste. Remember what I said earlier about Tolkien's views on allegory. There is no parallel in Tolkien's stories to C.S. Lewis's great lion Aslan, who is so clearly a manifestation of Jesus Christ. This is because that sort of thing is too much like the purposed domination of the reader by the writer that Tolkien dislikes. Generally, Tolkien will not try to steer his readers towards any plain Christian message in his stories, but the Christian worldview is the absolute bedrock upon which all of Tolkien's sub-creations are founded. I'd also note that Tolkien's essay on fairy stories, and the short story Leaf by Niggle that was published with it, are probably the two places in all of his published writings other than his letters, where he discusses his Christianity most openly. Anyway, so Tolkien claims that being a sub-creator is totally cool. But what about that question of escapism? What use is it to spend one's time in an imaginary fantasy world, either as an author or a reader? Shouldn't we be dealing with the real world? In addressing this question, Tolkien openly challenges the modernist and postmodernist assumptions about the world. I would add that the conflict between Tolkien's ideas about this and the dominant 20th century philosophies is a big reason why his works are still not taken seriously by literary scholars today. English professors as a group tend to rule Tolkien out of the literary canon without blinking, largely because fantasy stories about elves and dragons obviously cannot be serious literature. Near the heart of this assumption lies this idea of escapism. It's not serious literature because it does not deal with the real world, and therefore it's viewed with disdain. It's childish. Tolkien observes that the accusation of escapism is almost always made in a tone of scorn, but he points out that no such tone is attached to the word escape in normal life. Normally, escaping is a good thing. Sometimes it's even a heroic thing. What's the reason for the scorn, then? It boils down, Tolkien claims, to how we view the so-called real world. Is the real world really all there is? If so, then fantastic worlds that suggest higher, greater things above the mundane are completely empty, they're lies, and indulging in them is at least an act of shameful irresponsibility. You're not facing facts. But what if there is something else? What if there is something greater, something higher than the world that surrounds us? What if something like the opposite of our assumptions is true? What if the mundane world is only a shadow, a distraction from this higher reality? You will, of course, again notice Tolkien's Christian worldview asserting itself here. Tolkien claims that this is indeed the case. Imaginative sub-creation, through the use of artistic skill, opens windows on this higher world. This is especially true of fantasy. In this sense, we actually can escape the primary world. Fantasy frees our minds from bondage to drudgery and corruption. This is not an act of shameful escapism. Rather, this is like an escape from a prison. Remember the implications of the Tree of Tales metaphor. An author catches glimpses of something larger than himself, something outside, beyond his own experience. Through his stories, he can share those glimpses, and help his readers to escape as well. Tolkien argues further that fantasy doesn't undermine our relationship with reality, with the primary world. To the contrary, the glimpses it provides cleanse and heal that relationship. He suggests that this is actually necessary, that our understanding of reality may well become diseased without it. Fantasy doesn't distort the world, it helps us to regain a clear view of the world. This picks up on what I mentioned earlier about fantasy serving to excite our faculties of awe and wonder. Let me explain Tolkien's argument about how this works. We naturally tend to have our attention fixed on the world around us. This leads us, over time, to stop really looking at what surrounds us in the world. As things become familiar, we don't pay attention to them, and even worse, we end up adopting an attitude of possessiveness toward them. Here is how Tolkien describes the process. He says of the things that surround us, We say we know them. They have become like the things which once attracted us by their glitter, or their color, or their shape, and we laid hands on them, and then locked them in our hoard, acquired them, and acquiring ceased to look at them. Works of fantasy, by their distance from the everyday world, prompt us to see the things in our own world afresh by making them strange, by freeing them, as Tolkien says, from the drab blur of triteness or familiarity. Tolkien's own works can definitely have this effect. Shadowfax the Great may prompt us to see horses differently. Ents are quite likely to make us change how we think about trees. Hobbits may change our understanding of our own neighbors, or even of ourselves. As we become less obsessed with, less fixated on our own mundane world, we become less desensitized to it. We rediscover its wonders and its delights. We become, as Tolkien says, the lovers of nature rather than her slaves. On the whole, therefore, we find that when Tolkien says in the foreword that his motive for writing The Lord of the Rings was to try his hand at a really long story that will delight and move his readers, he's not showing any kind of false modesty at all. If anything, he's admitting to a serious artistic ambition. His goal in writing The Lord of the Rings, and his other works, was to sub-create a world that would support secondary belief, that would allow his readers to invest themselves in it. If he succeeded, and his readers could find themselves amused, excited, and deeply moved, then perhaps his story would even accomplish some of the higher goals of storytelling. Perhaps even his story, which he himself doubted the worth of for so long, would provide glimpses for his readers of the joy beyond the world. This is why Tolkien was so adamantly resistant to those approaches to his stories that were reductive and oversimplifying, that distracted attention from the story itself. For Tolkien, his writing was about the story, the unfolding of a leaf on the tree of tales and sharing it with his readers. In these lectures I hope to examine Tolkien's works as he would have wanted to see them examined. I won't be psychoanalyzing Tolkien or dissecting his stories, but rather examining them closely and exploring their delights, their beauties, and their patterns. In each individual lecture, I will be looking very closely at the details of Tolkien's sub-creation by discussing short passages of Tolkien's works, and through the series as a whole, I will be showing how these details come together to form larger, compelling patterns of thought. I hope that you've enjoyed this introduction, and that you will join me in my further explorations of Tolkien's remarkable sub-creation.